Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Today, we're going to explore a peculiar volume in the history of Yiddish literature, the Yiddish translation of the Christian Bible, written by Chaim Yechiel Henry Einspruch, titled Der Bris Chadasha, first published in Baltimore in 1941. The saga of Einspruch's translation of the Christian Bible is the subject of a new Yiddish drama, The Gospel According to Chaim, written by Michal Yashinsky and recently produced by the New Yiddish Rep Theater Company in New York. I'm delighted to explore Einspruch's translation with my friend and colleague Naomi Seidman. Professor Seidman is the Jackman Humanities Professor at the University of Toronto in the Department for the Study of Religion and the Center for Diaspora and Transnational Studies. Welcome, Naomi. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest in Chaim Einspruch's translation of the Christian Bible? So um, what my background, I'm Jewish, uh, raised in a, <laughs> in a <laughs> I grew up in, a, um, I guess, a my father was a Yiddish journalist. Um, I grew up in an Orthodox, maybe even ultra-Orthodox, um, Yiddish-speaking home in Bar Park, Brooklyn. Um, I left that world when I was 18. Um, I, I can't even remember exactly how I stumbled on my copy of the Bris Chadasha. I wish I could say that it was a missionary that accosted me in Times Square, but I don't that that's correct. Um, I think I probably saw it at the Yiddish Book Center, which is the same place that uh, Michal, Michal Vashinsky saw it. So, and it's a beautiful volume. It's really beautifully illustrated. Um, the second edition is, and um, the illustrations were, I guess, stolen, used without attribution um, from uh, Lillian, which seems to be a thing in in these circles where copyright isn't uh, strictly enforced. And uh, it just caught my eye at some point in my life. I worked at the Yiddish Book Center. I was actually in the first uh, group of summer interns at the Yiddish Book Center, and that really changed my life. And it's very possible that I, I, I first saw the Yiddish New Testament there. And many, many years later, I published a short article about it. And I've always thought maybe one day I'll go back and write a whole book about this. But so far, that's all I know is what I wrote in that short article. Sure. And um, so just to set the stage uh, for our listeners, um, um, Einspruch's 1941 translation of the Christian Bible was not the first um uh, uh, tra- Yiddish translation of the New Testament. What were the first translations of Yiddish translations of the New Testament? So there were many. I don't know how many I counted. I don't know, eight or nine, and I'm not sure I got them all. And one of the interesting things I discovered, and this is really from the research of Magda Tater at Fordham, 
is uh, that one of the first, I don't know, four or five Yiddish books ever printed was a New Testament. So I talked a little bit about that in my talk at Evo. It's, uh, it was, as was the case for many Yiddish New Testaments, it followed Luther very closely. Uh, Luther's famous translation of the New Testament was, I believe, published in 1524. And this first Yiddish printed New Testament was published in 1540, so 16 years later. And um, in the years that followed, in the hundreds of years that followed, there were, as I said, eight or nine other attempts to translate the New Testament into Yiddish done by missionaries or you know, people interested in evangelizing to the Jews and winning Jewish souls. And for the first few hundred years, these tended to be kind of Luther in Hebrew letters with some changes, um, which is a very quick and easy way to do what, uh, what, if you're a Christian and Luther is your Hebrew, I mean, is your sacred text, um, it's very easy to take Luther and just put him into Hebrew letters, and then you have something like a Yiddish New Testament. But not, I mean, uh, not entirely. There were changes made, um, even from the very first one, to reflect the differences between Yiddish and German, the differences between Jewish culture and German culture. But basically, um, these were lightly Judaized versions of Luther for a number of reasons. One, it was easy to do, and translators now have Google Translate, so that's the easiest of them all, but um, this was a kind of easy Google Translate. And another reason was that um, among Christian missionaries, among German speakers, Yiddish was considered just a terribly ungrammatical, mispronounced form of German. So the closer you got to German, the better. Not only are you going to maybe, you know, win a Jewish soul or two, but at the very least, you'll improve their language. So you'll move it closer to German. So that's the, I think, the, the two basic... Re oh, and Aya Al-Yada also writes about this, a guy who speaks Yiddish. These, these Christian missionaries were uplifting Jews in their own imagination, and what that meant was turning, turning the, uh, their Yiddish more German, and there were plenty of Jews playing that game too. But Jews who, who weren't necessarily interested in Christianity, you mean, just interested in elevating right. no, the Yiddish yeah. language. So the first, this is maybe slightly off track, but the first uh, Yiddish journal was actually a supplement to, um, I'm sorry, it was a supplement to the Hebrew uh, journal Hamelitz, and it was called Kol Mavaser, and in their statement of purpose, in their Hebrew explanation for what they're doing, they said the first few issues are going to be Yiddish, and then gradually we're going to Germanize and Germanize and Germanize until we're basically writing German in Hebrew letters, and that's how we're going to teach Jews German, proper German. <laughs> we're going to improve them, and, and it's got nothing to do with Christianity. So, that, so this was just a Haskalah idea. So, and there were Muslims. 
Jewish Enlightenment, right? So there were Jewish enlighteners that were trying to improve, uh, you know, Yiddish, people's Yiddish, and turn it closer to German. And um, there were actually among the Muskelum, there were a few uh, converts from Judaism to Christianity in, in that period who continued to be, you know, to work as Muskelum, to write as Muskelum, in Hebrew mostly, but the translator of Shakespeare into Hebrew, the first translator of Shakespeare into Hebrew. So this was a, a thing that was happening both in the missionary world and in what could be called the, the Jewish intelligentsia. It was accepted across the board that Yiddish was not really a language. And it was, I mean, think about, you know, what some people call Ebonics, right? Just, uh, English spoken incorrectly, you know, and and the point of education in quotes. Yes, you don't see my quotes on this podcast. So, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll make the quotes audible. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, the project of turning Yiddish into German was 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 broadly shared among different uh, groups, including missionaries and the Jewish intelligentsia. Right, right. And then, so is it fair to say that Chaim Einspruch's um, Yiddish translation of the Christian Bible was the first uh, sort of purely Yiddish, uh, or, 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 or I don't know, pure, like the closest to uh, a truly Yiddish translation of the, of the Bible? It was the first translation of the New Testament that came out of the new ideology and cultural context of Yiddishism. It was a Yiddishist New Testament, um, which meant that it understood Yiddish to be a true language with its own distinctive um, character, it, it, which was uh, beloved and spoke to some heart of what it meant to be Jewish. Um, it was part of the Yiddishist revival, and part of and it, it fit in with the Yiddishist revival in many different ways, including that at the first Chernovitz conference in 1908, which was the conference at which Yiddish was declared a national tongue, it came really close to being declared the national tongue of the Jewish people, but it it, it it, it, it right basically erasing Hebrew from that status, but it managed to eke by with the compromise, which was that it was a national tongue. And at this conference, very famously, Peretz spoke at this conference, and he said, "If we are a national tongue, then we need everything that a national tongue has. We're not just occupying the lowest level and doing like you know." Um, translations of great literature, all, we're doing everything. We're going to do high and low and all the places in between. And we need a new translation of the Hebrew Bible that reflects that. And we need to translate all the great works of world literature. So I think even Jews can agree that one of the great works of world literature is the New Testament. So it fit very nicely into a Yiddishist agenda that basically saw Yiddish as independent of, of German and that stressed all the ways that it was independent and, um, and that recognized itself as speaking 
you know, to a worldwide audience interested in the circulation of ideas. Nothing that was human was foreign to it. Um, a Yiddish writer, a Yiddish literature uh, was capacious and cosmopolitan. And, you know, Einspruch was not a cosmopolitan, secularist, atheist, socialist, Yiddishist, of, who is, let's say, the, the, the person you think of when you think of these uh, Yiddishists. He was a little different. He was a, you know, a fundamentalist, evangelical, Lutheran, millennialist. He had some pretty extreme views. <laughs> but he had lots of friends in the world of Yiddish. And he read them, and he was part of it. And you know, it even included this. It, the Yiddish culture at this time was even capable of accepting someone like Einspruch, who I think would not be so welcome in a lot of Jewish spaces today. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And we're going to talk in a little bit about how, to the, the extent to which he was accepted in his own day. Um, but could you tell us a little bit more about Einspruch's life, his biography, just so we have some idea of you know, where he was born, where he came from, how he ended up in Baltimore, things like that. <laughs> so Einspruch was, came, was, I forget his hometown, but he came from some small town in Eastern Europe. He was, his family were Sanzer Hasidim. And so he, you know, had a Hasidic childhood, not, I guess not so different from yours, or maybe not so different from mine, um, though a lot longer time ago. And um, he, like many other people of his time, um, became secular and then became a, um, a Zionist and moved to Palestine in sometime in the early part of the 20th century and was part of that whole thing. And then somehow was, I, I don't know if we know the story of how exactly he was introduced to Christianity, but he became a believer in Jesus. He um, moved to the United States. It's possible that this, um, you know, the, the, I won't say conversion to Christianity because as far as we know, he never converted, but the acceptance as, of Jesus as his Lord and Savior, if you want to call it that, um, that that happened either on board ship to the United States or in the early years because missionary activity was, um, that's where the missionaries were the most active among the displaced populations of new immigrants. You give them a meal and with the meal comes a little sermon or maybe even a place to stay. But in any case, in some way he was introduced to Christianity and became a believer and went to um, a uh, you know, basically an evangelical Christian, Lutheran Christian seminary, McCormick sem se seminary, and ended up living in the Orthodox neighborhood in, in Baltimore and opening up a little Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Yes, uh, he lived in the Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Baltimore, and he had a little church there, which we have pictures of, is still apparently standing. Um, and his he preached to Orthodox Jews. That was his target population. Wow. So in addition to translating the the Bible, and we're going to get to, to more the on the so the details of his translation, um, he was also kind of an active missionary to Orthodox Jews. 
Yes. So he basically would stand on this, this. These are the descriptions of him. People in Baltimore still remember that you would walk out of shul on Shabbos and there Einspruch would be standing on his soapbox and uh, wishing people good Shabbos and spreading the news of Jesus Christ in Yiddish to this community. Um, at the same time, he also was considered himself a kind of Yiddishist. He, he has a collection of Yiddish um, uh, proverbs. I mean, he published in Yiddish. He published about Yiddish and English. So not all of his work was associated with Christianity. He also fashioned himself a kind of Yiddishist intellectual. So he was a Yiddishist intellectual and a missionary primarily to Orthodox Jews and a translator of the New Testament. Those were his major activities. And maybe this is the moment to mention his wife, Marie Gerlach, who was from an Amish family. So uh, also moved a little bit away from her own childhood religion um, to become this kind of uh, Lutheran, this kind of, uh, let's say, fundamentalist offshoot of Lutheranism. Um, and they spoke, she spoke Pennsylvania Dutch to him and he spoke Yiddish to her. And apparently they were able to understand each other as well as men and women ever can. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And they had one child, I believe, a daughter. Is that correct? I think that that's right. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember Marie uh, Erlach, his wife, died at the age of 105, uh, not too long ago, in the 2002 or something. So I remember looking up some obituaries. I believe they, they did have a daughter, yeah. Uh, he must have been quite a bit older than her. Right. And and you mentioned this before, but I just want to highlight this. Um, that Did Einspruch himself feel that he had converted to Christianity? In other words, that he had so to speak, left Judaism to become a, a, a believer in Jesus. Absolutely. And he, I mean, the he was part of, he wasn't the only one who was reconceptualizing what it meant to convert to Christianity. So um, the late 19th and early 20th century, a kind of cultural change around um, what it meant to be a Jewish convert to Christianity occurred, which is that you could now consider, instead of seeing Judaism as the religion that you absolutely leave behind when you become Christian, you change your name, um, you, that, you, that early you write terrible things about Jews. You, this is a kind of pattern in Jewish life that leaving Judaism to become a Christian is, is, is an act of repudiation. Um, and Einspruch and various others, they were sometimes called Hebrew Christians. Um, they started their own um, organizations. They started their own churches. They start. It's kind of an early expression of Jews for Jesus. And the and some of them did formally convert, were baptized, etc. But not all of them did. And some of them fully believed that there was no contradiction to being Jewish and to being Christian. And Einspruch was of that belief. Um, and as I said, we don't have evidence that he converted, and it's very possible that he didn't. And there were others like him, and there were um, there were there were and are people who go from being Jewish, where they have the name 
they're, they're calling themselves Henry as Jews, and they take on Jewish names. They become more Jewish when they become Christian, um, which is a, a kind of interesting paradox, but it's, a, it's of a piece, I think, of what's happening with, with, uh, with Jewish culture at large. A kind of, it's a kind of multiculturalism, a kind of Jewish nationalism, only within this smaller circle of converts to Christianity. Right. And I'm just curious, do we know who funded Einspruch's activities? I mean, you said he had a little church. He, he came to publish the, 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 the Christian Bible in Yiddish. He published, uh, I saw he published a collection uh, of Yiddish translations of Christian hymns. Um, and, and so, you know, he's doing all of this publishing and, and other activities. Uh, do we know, uh, you know, who funded this, this operation? So at the very beginning of his career, Einspruch was getting support from the Lutheran, this, this evangelical Lutheran church, which had an active outreach to Jews and they were supporting him. And as the depression kicked in and as with the rise of Nazism, the Lutheran church basically shut down its Jewish operations, whether they did it because this wasn't the moment to try to convert Jews or whether they did it because of the, you know, they couldn't afford it or for whatever reason, um, he lost this or because he was too eccentric or because he didn't, you know, it was against him or because he didn't convert or for whatever reason, he basically, uh, the ties between him and, and his, where he had gone to Bible college with his theological seminary, his teachers, those seemed to have, or because he moved into the Orthodox neighborhood, whatever reason, I'm not hundred percent sure they dissipated and he was on his own, which is where the play kind of finds him. But as a matter of fact, he was very lucky with one of his converts. So one of his converts was a woman named Harriet Letterer. I don't, there's no evidence that he had a lot of converts typically in these Jewish Christian congregations, there tend to be more Christians that love Jews than Jews who love Christians. Um, that may well have right, the Jews who love Christianity. So um, I, I don't really know what the composition of his church was, but in his congregation, he had a wealthy woman, maybe, uh, uh, I need to learn more about her. Um, the uh, missionaries often targeted uh, wealthy widows, let's say, you know, the, the stories about the lonely widow and how she came to church. So she might have been this kind of lonely widow and she funded his activities. So if you look at a copy of the uh, New Testament, you will see funded by the Harriet Letterer Foundation. And the Harriet Letterer Foundation is basically Harriet Letterer. Right. I see. I see. I did. I did see that that uh, notice, and I was curious about who who that represented. Okay, very interesting. Um, and and you mentioned about uh, uh, Einspruch, uh, Ein, uh, his uh, um, uh, um, uh, challenges to publishing his um, his Yiddish translation of the Christian Bible. Uh, what did happen? Were, were, were Yiddish publishers willing to take on his project? So Einspruch had a problem, and this is really at the heart of the play. 
But my understanding, I think, might be a little different from uh, Michal Vashinsky's uh, understanding, Yashinsky. Um, the, what I've understood is that the, the Yiddish press was basically a orthodox working class profession. So all over Baltimore and New York, the people who ran the type, the people who owned the type, and this was true in Eastern Europe too, were like, it was a, a, a working class profession, but mostly an Orthodox profession. And maybe there are reasons for that that we can imagine. But um, what this ended up meaning is that the press, without having any kind of formal censorship powers, could actually censor what was published. And that, and this was true for the Haskalah too. They had to circulate their, they had to circulate their writings underground because it was Hasidim or you know from families that ran this press, that press, the the Rom press, whatever. Uh, secular Jews, first of all, they were an elite, and they they might be the editors in chief, but they're not running the print shops. So the print shops are like, you know, what what are what are working class Hasidim going to do? You know, they're not going to own a car fixing, you know, place. So they have they have uh, print shops. So he couldn't get a print shop to, you know, the print shops is what we had. The print shops were not open to publishing this. Um, that's the kind of uh, historical datum that opens up into a, a, a play if you have the right kind of imagination, um, which I didn't, but uh, someone else. Uh, so apparently Einspruch, you know, got turned away by the press, which is interesting because if the press were owned by the Yiddish intelligentsia, then it probably would have been fine, um, but they weren't. So he couldn't, he had to buy his own uh, type which was used only, you know, he didn't have a print shop. It was, you know, very used for these projects alone. Um, and this, and his daughter um, contributed his Yiddish type, beautiful Yiddish type. As we know, these are, this is a really beautiful, it's the most beautiful New Testament that we have in Yiddish. I um, mean, she contributed to the Yiddish Book Center, I think in the 80s or 90s. So that's another thing that uh, Michal Yashinsky saw when he was working at the Yiddish Book Center, is this is this type, whatever it's called, uh, the, the, the set of it, um, that was bought solely for this purpose by Einspruch, um, that was then donated in incredibly good condition. <laughs> right, right. I see. Right. So, but he used so Einspruch used this uh, typeset or the the, the the equipment to to print, uh, and he uh, and his family um, managed to to use that to print these uh, uh, Christian Bibles in Yiddish. Do we know how many Bibles uh, uh, Einspruch printed? So, okay, so uh, I don't know how many, but one of the funny things about it, I don't know which copy you've seen, but um, one of the things it says is um, there's a letter included that's um, in the New Testament that says, um, this is a gift. And the truth is you get it for free from these Bible societies. So it is a gift. And it says the Jews gave the, the world this amazing book 
and we are giving it back to you. Um, and the whole question of what kind of gift it is and who's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting rhetorical strategy because um, you're not allowed, because the Bible societies don't allow you to publish a, a, a translation with any kind of commentary or introduction because from the beginning, it's supposed it's this kind of Protestant ideology. The book itself will do the work it needs to do. And also, we don't want to get into denominations and how you interpret this word and how you interpret that word. Let's not go there. Let's just give people this, this book. But so instead of a, an introduction, it's a kind of um, letter that's included. And if you know anyone else who might be interested, let us know and we'll send them another copy. And it just this very moment occurred to me that it actually, Einspruch actually did give a gift to the Jewish people and the gift was his type. <laughs> right, right. The type that now the Yiddish Book Center at Amherst, Massachusetts now uh, uh, possesses. Everybody knows the type. <laughs> right, right. What they use the type to type or to print is a, is another matter. <laughs> yeah. But I, I I heard you say previously that there were thousands of of these uh, of Einspruch's translation of the Bible printed. That this was not a couple hundred copies. That there were thousands of them. Um, um, no, and I'm just... I, I should let me qualify that. So what I was talking about was Yiddish New Testaments in general. And especially the best-selling one, which was the, the 19th century one by Bergman, it's, it's, they flooded the market. The estimate is that three-quarters of a million copies of the New Testament uh, were published. I think most of them, most of those, um, by the time Einspruch's um, New Testament came out, where are the Yiddish masses to propagate it amongst um, where is the Eastern European Jewish community where you might be able to, you know, dump a lot of copies? That's all over. Um, this is, I think, circulated at much lower numbers. But the, the one that circulated among immigrant populations was the Bergman, and that was, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. I see. I miss. I misremembered. My apologies. So, so, um, but just speaking of the the Bergman translation, I'm curious how many of those are are, are still around. In other words, what happened to the hundreds of thousands of New Testaments in Yiddish that that were produced uh, in the late 1800s? So, there's a couple of things that first of all we have to explain, which is the economic model because I think Jews typically misunderstand this. Like you ask the right question, who's paying for this and why? And one of the, like how many hundreds of thousands of New Testaments and how many converts? Like how are the, it's like when you give an academic talk and you're getting paid, I don't know, $700 and there's four people in the audience and you're thinking like, how does this work? Um, why are these people not going to a very fancy meal instead? So one of the ways it works is that, um, um, missionaries get their money. First of all, missionaries are supported not based on how many converts they manage to get, which those numbers could be very small. Um, they're supported based on the um, contributions they get from Christian communities 
that are moved by stories of their successes, even if these successes are exaggerated or whatever. They, you know, the idea of saving Jewish souls is what propels um, people to donate Christians and often women. Um, you know, Einspruch was not alone in um, finding a woman to support him. This is also traditional, right? Jewish men know all about finding Jewish women to support them. And this is just the Christian variety. <laughs> I see, this is a, a, a mix of the history of Yiddish and translation with a bit of a, a Catskills uh, a stand-up act. <laughs> So what you have is you have a bunch of what could be called the, you know, the, um, let's say, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, missionary uh, ladies auxiliary, auxiliary. They're sitting in a room and they're, you know, in a parlor and they have tea and they read some letters from a missionary who's like, I, you know, I went to win Jewish souls and I met this lonely widow and she came, she told me how much the New Testament meant for her and she cried and now she's a good Christian. So they tell stories like this. I don't know if Chabad has these kinds of stories too. Um, the Lubavitch uh, uh, Hasidic community headquartered in Brooklyn, but uh, famous for uh, international outreach efforts. Yeah. That I grew up. I, and uh, I wonder if there's a genre uh, uh, that's similar. Right. Well, that is interesting. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if there's a, a similar genre. So the genre pulls at the heart strings, and then the heart strings, heart strings get pulled, and then you pull at the purse strings. And so the missionary manages to do his work, um, supported by this economy, and it, no one's asked, I mean, yeah, the Bible societies want numbers. They want to know what the numbers of converts are, of course. But they're not expecting much when it comes to the Jews, right? We all know what a tough nut that is to crack. So you get a few successes and you're in business. Einspruch was just unfortunate that didn't, his gravy train dried up. But um, what happens to these there's these these basically are they're within the Jewish context. They're considered the treif puzzle, which means they're they're unkosher and um, illegitimate, and they need to be blotted out. And you take them not so much because you want to read it, but because you don't want the missionary to have it, a, an extra one to give to someone else. And then you do with it what you do with it and what people did with it. I mean, this might be a kind of folklore that people used it to wrap fish or whatever. You weren't, you know, you, you, you didn't treat it as a, you know, as a, or maybe you were a rebellious teenager and you actually opened it up and read it. And uh, maybe even after you opened up and read it, you decided you really liked it. And maybe there you go. You're, you're, you're one of those. It's not like there were no successes. Um, there were just fewer successes than somebody using an economic model based on a different kind of business uh, might expect. Right, right. Or hopeful. And, sure. And, and thinking about Einspruch's uh, uh, translation, uh, what literary sources did he use, did he rely on when developing his own translation of the Bible? 
Right. So um, Einspruch, as I said, was, you know, he had multiple purposes for, for using the style he used. Um, one was certainly to speak to, um, to speak to uh, his hoped for targets, Yiddish speaking Jews, immigrants mostly, in a language that they could respect. Because one of the things that Jews used to do is make fun of missionary Yiddish, because missionaries were known to speak terrible Yiddish. Um, so Einspruch, uh, so Einspruch basically modeled his Yiddish New Testament on Yehayash. Yehayash was the renowned modernist, modern Yiddish translator of the Hebrew Bible, who uh, put trans- Hebrew Bible translation onto, uh, uh, you know, in, onto the level that the new Yiddishist culture demanded. So not like the old Yiddish Bible translations that were like a Teitschumers for women or something that you would read in a cheder. This was sublime poetry. So he kind of transposed it from religious literature to poetry. Um, so it had a high style um, and it was meant to, Yehoyash's work was meant to appear, appeal as much to secularists and atheists as it was to a religious audience. It was, and it was meant to stand on its own. It wasn't like a little bit of Hebrew and then the Yiddish, like the old, um, the old uh, uh, model of what Yiddish translation was that it basically served the Hebrews. So Santa Rana has a piece the Yiddish Women's Bible, what's known as the Yiddish Women's Bible, incorrectly, according to some, um, has a little bit of the Hebrew and then a little bit of the Yiddish, a little bit the way the cheder in, in the in the one-room schoolhouse, the Bible is translated. This is a different thing. This is a, a modernist masterpiece of the Bible as great literature. And Einspruch basically took that as his goal, but um, with a, a slight twist which is that Yehoyash's Yiddish Bible was insufficiently Jewish for Einspruch. So Einspruch's Yiddish New Testament had to be more Jewish. So where um, because he had the double message of this is great world literature and this is great literature that speaks to you Jews about a Jew. So he had to come down on the Jewishness of the New Testament more um, directly than Einspruch, than Yehoyash came down on the Jewishness of the Hebrew Bible. He was fine with the Hebrew Bible not being so Jewish, which it isn't. It's, you know, whoever those people were, they weren't Jewish. They were something else. So the example I gave, so the example I gave is the word Sefer. Yehoyash translates the Greek, the word sefer in the Bible as buch. So Yiddish has two words for buch, and one is a holy book, and one is a secular book. Um, Yehoyash translates the word sefer in the Hebrew Bible as buch, a secular book. Um, Einspruch translates the word biblios, the Greek word for book, which is obviously a Greek translation of the Hebrew word sefer, or maybe the Aramaic word safra, or whatever it is. Um, and he translates it as sefer. So the Yiddish Hebrew Bible has the word buch 
and the Yiddish New Testament, which otherwise follows Yehoyash closely. And it's easy to follow Yehoyash closely because the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible are so closely connected intertextually that you could find a parallel Hebrew verse and see what Yehoyash does and then do the same. And he did do that, except that Yehoyash wasn't Jewish enough for him. So he had to he had to schmaltz up the, the, uh, the New Testament to make it even more Jewish. Wow. And I'm curious, how does Einspruch translate uh, the, um, uh, the, the kind of titles for Jesus? How, how does he refer to Jesus in his translation? So first of all, that's that the uh, um, I'm trying to remember if that's really different from um, uh, Bergman, but almost any uh, Yiddish translation, maybe, maybe the, so, so what is, uh, so the New Testament has, he has three words by which it regularly describes Jesus. The one that's least common is Jesus, our master, Jesus, our teacher, and Jesus, our rabbi. Of course, rabbi means both master and teacher, more teacher than master, but they're both in there. Um, and it's well understood by New Testament scholars that basically um, every time Jesus is called either teacher or master, the underlying term, the term that underlies the Greek is rabbi. So basically, if we had the lost original to the New Testament, because the New Testament is already a Greek translation of some original Aramaic-speaking uh, context, um, then Jesus would be called rabbi hundreds of times in the New Testament. You know, on many, many, many pages, you would have, it would be impossible to forget that Jesus was a rabbi. So this is the case for, you know, Einspruch is well aware of this, and and Jesus is rabbi. Um, before that, you can do Lehrer or Meister and um, or Herr, uh, which is what Luther has. Um, so there's a move to, this is part of what is meant by Judaizing um, Jesus. But there are other examples. I mean, Jesus, Jesus wears, uh, you know, somebody in the book of Revelation, people blow trumpets. In Einspruch's book of Revelation, they blow a shofar or shofars. Um, Jesus eats bread in the New Testament. He eats matzah in Einspruch. He makes a bracha on the matzah. Um, every opportunity what yeah blessing every opportunity that you he can to remind people that jesus was in fact a jew um as we know um which is a way of this strange way in which a translation is actually can be so the 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 new testament is originally in greek as we know though a few times in the New Testament, we get Jesus's own words, and those own words are Aramaic. So it stands to reason that basically anything in the New Testament um, that's in Greek, where, certainly when Jesus is speaking, would originally have been in Aramaic and maybe also in Hebrew, um, if it's a blessing or something like that. So um, the 
Einspruch Yiddish actually functions to recover an original that's been lost. So the Einspruch, from one perspective, Einspruch's Yiddish New Testament is more faithful and accurate to the story than um, than the Greek. And this effect is certainly something that Christians also noticed. Right, right. And, um, I, and I, I'm curious about one other um, sort of translation that Einspruch does it very much in line with what you're what you're talking about about making his New Testament as quote unquote Jewish or 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 non-threatening uh, to his Yiddish readers. Um, and this has to do with um, his translation of the title of the book of the Bible that's commonly known as the Acts of the Apostles. How, how does Einspruch translate that? So the Acts of the Apostles, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which is, um, could you imagine anything more Gaish than that? Anything more Christian than that? Right. So, so um, in Luther, it's the Apostelgeschichte, or that's my sort of Yiddish version of the German. In Bergmann, it's the Apostelgeschichte. We're like, okay, apostles, it's this new Christian thing. We don't know what it is. It's an apostle, right? So this is the disciples and the apostles. And um, in Einspruch, first of all, he calls the apostles, um, which obviously comes from the Greek, apostola, right? He recovers the, um, the meaning of the Greek, which is messenger, and he calls them shlichim. The only thing that could be more Jewish is if they were shluchim, right? Um, so... <laughs> I'll just interject for me. So listeners who are not familiar, uh, again, I grew up Lubavitch, which is part of a, a, a Hasidic community, the Hasidic community. And the Lubavitch Hasidic community is famous for having uh, emissaries, quote unquote, from the Lubavitch Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who go around the world and uh, these days and try to... Um, uh, um, uh, inspire non-observant Jews or less observant Jews to become more religiously observant. And the in, the internal uh, term for these people who go around the world are shluchim, people who were sent, quote-unquote, by the Lubavitcher Rebbe to do this outreach work. And so when I heard that Einspruch referred to the apostles as the shluchim <laughs> or shaliach, I, I I almost got chills to be honest. I, I, I thought it was it was it was very close to home. It felt very close to home. So the feeling of chills close to home that is the feeling that this translation is supposed to inspire. The feeling of there should be a word for it. Um and there must be a long German term for it. The feeling when something that you have been taught to believe is foreign or that you deeply believe is other than you, and you suddenly see it as, oh, you recognize this as something that is so close to you that um, that's what, I mean, that's the desire. Maybe you could say that's what Einspruch himself felt when he encountered Christianity. It's also, I don't know if, if you've ever like had a conversation with a Muslim where you go, 
wait, what does Mubarak mean? Oh, it comes from Baruch? Um, or in other words, all those ways in which the person you see as other, or you know what's going on right now, if I, it's okay to bring this, you know, the feeling that what we're looking at in Gaza is so familiar from a kind of you know, Jewish history, that idea of, in some ways it's narcissistic, right? You, these people only speak to you if they speak to you in your own language. But that that, that shiver, that frisson, you know, that you felt with the shluchim, the, and it's the demaisim from the shluchim, right? It's not just the, 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 the tales of the shluchim. Suddenly you're, you're not in high church territory. You're in, you're in something heimish. And Einspruch, that's how Einspruch felt about Christianity. That's what he felt. In some ways, he felt like Jews had the right, Jews understood Christianity better than Christians did. It was basically a kind of ownership of, of, of Christianity. Uh, 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 this is who we are, right? This is, and that's what the, that's what the translation expresses. And I don't just mean to make it like say that it's strategy. It's clearly strategy. If you want to reach a Jewish audience, then you better overcome their deep psychological um, resistance to Christianity, which is inbred at such a young age um, for Jews. You have to overcome it if you have any chance of, you know, spreading the good news or however you want to put it. And to, to do it, overcome that, 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 inhibition or that resistance through having Christianity touch what's most familiar, um, that's the best shot you have at, at winning a soul. Right, right. I was just saying that, that I used to get Christian missionary literature as a child in Hasidic Brooklyn, and the the um, the visuals, the art that was included in the literature, uh, um, it, it portrayed Jesus and the apostles in a w- ways that seemed, you know, uniquely foreign to us and uniquely Goyish or non-Jewish and uh, they were all clean shaven and Jesus has blonde hair they looked you know uh, uh, strikingly Aryan and uh, I just wanted you to speak for a moment about the art or the visuals that Einspruch included in his Bible and what he was trying to achieve there so the art does a lot of work um, that the people who are wasting their money putting missionary literature on your doorstep um, could have used. Um, the art really, the art really does the work of positioning um, the New Testament within uh, um, a Jewish world visually. And a good example is the first, um, the the one at the very beginning of the book which is the book of Matthew. So what's interesting is that instead of having a picture of Jesus of any kind, there's a picture of an old Jewish man, again, stolen from Lillian, um, with a long beard, reading a safer by candlelight. In other words, it's like Einspruch's grandfather that he's estranged from that he wishes he wouldn't be. It's a kind of projection and fantasy of the ideal Jewish reader that would pick up a brisk hadasha and treat it like a safer. You know, read it by candlelight, I guess, I don't know, in some imaginary shtetl back in his hometown. Um, so the, um, the visuals do the work of framing this as a book that would be at home in uh, Svarim Shrank. Um, and even the color of the New Testament, it's that same 
I don't know, I think of it as blood red color, that there's so many Svarim have that same color, right? Um, it fits right there. There's no crosses. There's no. There's nothing to to to, to arouse your defenses, uh, your Jewish defenses. Um, you you recognize the man. You recognize the safer. Okay, that's the word Yeshu Yeshua. Um, you it helps you get past those defenses, which are so important when um, trying to reach a Jewish audience. But I think that also speak to a certain kind of fantasy of Einspruch himself, of a kind of Jewish-Christian reconciliation, and maybe even a reconciliation of his own family. Right. And uh, um, how was Einspruch's translation of the Bible received by the Jewish masses and by Yiddish intellectuals at the time of its publication. So I don't have a lot of information about that, but we do know that Einspruch got a very nice review from Melech Ravitch, um, and Melech Ravitch was one of the most important um, figures in the post-war um, Yiddish intelligentsia, various places, ended up in Montreal, the major figure there. So uh, the stamp of approval for Melech Ravitch meant a ton to Einspruch. He talked about it regularly, republished it, translated it into English. And basically, um, Melech Ravitch said, um, uh, this amazing book, the New Testament, has been kept for, under lock and key from us and it's totally appropriate that now we have it in a beautiful style that conforms with Yahayash, that does us honor. And he never mentioned by a convert, by a mishumad, by a, an apostate, by a missionary, by a Christian. Too polite to mention any of that. Um, and. Uh, basically, this was a moment, which I think we're now seeing again in some sense, in which Yiddish culture, even at this desperate moment of 41, was cosmopolitan and sophisticated and self-confident enough to welcome even this kind of work provided it shared some of the other characteristics, the pride in the Yiddish language, the pleasure in Jewishness, um, a little bit of proselytizing it could take if it was wrapped in this particular package. Right, right. Wow. Well, there's so much more to think about this translation and uh, Yiddish Bibles, uh, uh, Christian Bibles in Yiddish, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for taking your time to share your thoughts with us. And let me just add one more thing, which is that sure. if you haven't seen, it's also, I think we're at another similar moment. The interest in Einspruch um, speaks to something going on today, I think. And for your listeners, um, I think it's worth letting people know about this play again and encouraging them to attend. Right, right. So right now the play is it has finished its run. Um, I think I attended the last performance uh, a few weeks ago, but certainly they could, uh, but they could uh, uh, um, you know look into the play and maybe there'll be you know another performance at some point. Uh, but uh, thank you so much. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.